Podcast. The Gospel According to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. It's that time to dig back into the Word of God to pick up where we left off there in Matthew chapter 2 as we get started now (laughs) with a word of prayer. That always does it. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, God. We thank you that you are here among us, God, and that you want to do a good work through the power of your Word sent to save us, God. We thank you for the Christmas narrative, the account of how Christ came to dwell among us, God, and just, wow, some surprising twists and turns in the story and some things that we didn't expect about Christmas, but so true about anybody who receives Christ into their heart and into their life. And so teach us, show us some insights, fresh and new, we pray with the story that we've heard so many times in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, speaking of the meaning of Christmas, the secular world out there at large is clueless about Christmas. Now behind us, uh, just a few days, colorful lights always go up and companies host their parties and carols are sung and gifts are exchanged and everyone tries to be a little extra nice to people for at least a couple days, right? And uh, sadly, more attention is paid to Santa and his reindeer than to Christ and those he came to save. Now, as I mentioned at the opening of the service, and that which would surprise most unbelievers, uh, that Christmas, biblically speaking, is a declaration of war, really. Um, Understanding this will help you make sense of quite a lot of things that you find in the Bible and quite a lot of things that you find in your own Christian experience, the conflict conflict still rages today with anybody who's received Christ uh, as Lord. And so, yeah, as a result there in Bethlehem and the Christmas announcement and the star and the Magi and the greatest news the universe has ever had the privilege of hearing that God had seen our helpless estate and became one of us so that he could grow up the God-man, the perfect sacrifice for our sins to pay a debt that wasn't his, to die for the sins of the world that whosoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. That's a Christmas present indeed. He came, Israel's king, the Jewish prophecies foretold to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. But Satan 
doesn't take the glad tidings lying down, as we will see in a moment here in our text as we pick up and finish the story we started uh, last week here in Matthew chapter 2. Yes, of course there's comfort and joy in the good tidings, but (laughs) Christmas has its casualties too, as you have found out in your own hearts and in your own lives. And like every other war, there are casualties. And wherever Messiah shows up in this world, there's pushback and from the spiritual realms. And so if there is a devil, and there is, and if Christ's coming in the world was intended to defeat him, and it was, chapter and verse, verse John, chapter 3, verse 8, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work, period. Yeah, that doesn't sound like anything the world thinks about at Christmas time, but we know it to be true. So then we must conclude where God advances evil, we'll push back. And we see that cover to cover, and we see it, as I've been saying in this morning's passage here about the coming of Christmas. And uh, there are casualties, and we're going to meet them this morning as we pick up where we left off and finish out the chapter and return now to the battlefield in Bethlehem. Uh, We'll we'll start at verse 11 for context. On coming to the house, the wise men, the magi, uh, saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down before him, worshipped him, Then they opened their treasures, that's a big word, and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense or incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And here's where we pick up here, verses 13 now and following. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what, what, what the Lord had said through the prophet Hosea chapter 11 verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. And so we'll pause there. We will make it to the conclusion of the story and the chapter, as I've said. We continue now with this oh so familiar and infamous uh, part of the story. And we always pray that we'll get some fresh insight. And you always will if your heart is open and you hear the words combined with faith. That's what the Bible says. You have to hear Combining what you hear with faith for God to be able to speak to you, not only speak to you, but his word is alive and breathing. It's not like reading Huckleberry Finn, as I like to say, or Tom Sawyer. It's alive and living and active and sharp and it can get into places that only God can go because God is the one who made a human being. And when God speaks, he knows how to get that truth right into Grand Central Station there in our hearts and lives. And so, uh, according to the Bible, then um, the dramatic twist here, 
the supposed idyllic life of this sweet Christmas story, this silent night, holy night. Uh, No, not all is calm and no, not all is bright. For some caught in the crosshairs of this cosmic battle between God and the evil one, between the Lord and his adversary, as his name means. Satan in the Hebrew means the adversary. And so God has an enemy, and because we love God and we're associated with God, we too have an enemy. And so we're going to finish up the story. Now there's an evil plot afoot, and it goes way deeper than King Herod. The Bible says it's not about the face. It's about the power of the person, behind the person, I should say, that really is what we're dealing with. Our, our conflict is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and rulers, the unseen realities of spiritual darkness, to quote Ephesians chapter 6. And so uh, we'll pause along the way as we've already done the battle that still rages the battle we find ourselves engaged in as Christians, a battle that doesn't cease in Bethlehem. The Christian life is called a fight. A fight. And Paul will tell us through the Holy Spirit, fight the good fight of faith with every ounce of energy that God provides you. It will be worth it in the end. And so, note takers, this paragraph that you're staring at escape to Egypt, verses 13 through 15. Uh, the, it starts out by saying the wise men depart. And if you weren't here last week, you don't know what's going on. Well, mission accomplished for these guys who came from modern day Iraq. The wise men come from Babylon. Uh, where they see a star, Uh, they make a thousand-mile journey uh, based upon the scriptures left behind by Bible hero, prophet Daniel, who God gave through the power of the Holy Spirit the messianic timeline, when he would be born, when he would die, when he would come again, all there in Daniel chapter 9, and these guys have the scrolls, and they've been searching the skies, these wise men, and the, the scripture said there will be a star that rises out of the land, signifying the, the scepter of a king who would reign not over Israel, but over the entire world, that he would be the God-man, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be called mighty God, and so they're excited. It's worth a thousand-mile trek, and so so they came, as we saw last week, these wise Gentiles worshiping before the Jewish Messiah. Come on. That, that is just the way it goes. Look around you. Who loves Israel and who loves their Messiah more than us? Two billion, two billion worship Israel's king while uh, most of Jerusalem in the story with the star and the prophet Micah 5.2 saying he's going to be born in Bethlehem, they go back to sleep. And it's the Gentiles that come in and lead the way. And we see that is exactly what was going to happen. 
We Gentiles, I'm speaking of we, plural here, even though I'm related to them, right? And so we Gentiles, we uh, lead the way and they will come. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, after the Gentiles lead the way during what is called Armageddon, they turn to Christ and they receive him as their king. And he returns to a people who have opened their hearts to him. And so once again, you see kind of a shadow there with the Gentiles coming first, the Gentiles come first, and then they come behind. It's a little bit of a paradox, but this is the truth of the Bible. So picking up where we left off, uh, the Jews go back to sleep that night when the Magi say, and they tell them, they tell them, oh, go down the road five miles, you'll find Bethlehem and, and the Christ child you're looking for, but they go back to sleep. But Herod doesn't go back to sleep. Oh, he can't sleep because guess what? He's a believer. He's a believer. He believes what Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, that the king will be born in Bethlehem. Or he wouldn't do anything. He'd go back to sleep and laugh. Oh no, he believes that the scriptures are true. And he's going to fight against God. Not very smart, I don't recommend it, um, because God usually wins, if you know what I'm saying. And so why would anybody want to snuff out the light of the world? He wants to bring not gold, as I said last week. He wants to bring iron, the executioner's sword, and kill the son who would grow up and offer his life for his sins and make a way of escape for people like Herod who are bent on doing the wrong thing. So that catches us up to speed. We dive in at verse 13. They're gone. They've given their treasures and all of that back to Baghdad. But they, instead of going back the regular way, that would have to force them to go straight through the town of Jerusalem again and see Herod. Herod's got men looking for them to come back because there's a, basically a major way to come back. But they don't do that because they're warned in a dream not to do that. And he gets very, very angry, this baby king. <laughs> And he's going to blow a proverbial head gasket. So you're looking at the verses now. There's a dream. They're gone. They go back to Baghdad. And now Joseph's asleep. And they, he gets jabbed by an angel. Wake up, man. Make haste. The baby's in great danger. Flee to Egypt, man. Stay put until heaven tells you otherwise. Herod's going to throw a murderous temper tantrum. Uh, he's determined to kill the child. So this is dream number two for Joseph. He will have five dreams along the way. Number one, you'll recall, was don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And now the second dream is now you need to run for your life. Now, um, walking with God, it's not for the vein of heart. The way God calls us to live and to obey him. You gotta love Joseph. He's he's getting a lot more than he signed up for, isn't he? He fell in love with this girl. He wants to marry her. And now he's got drawn into, kind of sucked into this story, this connection to God and redemptive history. Much like us. Oh, you got more than you signed up for, didn't you? (laughs) 
when you said the sitter's prayer, you just thought, oh, now I'll be happy all the day as the hymn goes, <laughs> right? No, 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 no. And so this is part of the reason Christmas is in chaos is because sometimes in this life, when Christ comes into a dark place, a dark heart, a dark womb to be born and born on our lives and into this world, there's conflict, there's trouble, and, and it's going to uh, bear that out even now as we look ahead. And so, yeah, remember the famous old line from the TV westerns, uh, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. Well, Herod is a believer in the prophecies, and he doesn't want the real king because that'll mean he will be deposed or he would have to self-abdicate from the throne of self. And that is, as I said last week, that's, our pro that's the world's problem. Basically, Herod's problem is the unbeliever's problem. Self-rule to be king of your own life, to sit on the throne of your own heart. Oh, the gospel says, oh, you're the wrong person to be uh, in charge of you because you didn't make you. You don't know the future. You don't know where you came from. You don't know where you're going. We've been created by God. So God wants the reins back. And that's a fight that some have uh, that will cost them reconciliation with God and then out for eternity. And so, yeah, no room for two kings. And so interesting to me in your text that they know, they figured out that they didn't just forget or take a wrong turn. They deliberately outsmarted him and tried to avoid him. And he knows that. Why? Because their chariots, their entourage was spotted, no doubt, taking the back roads. And so one of the guards said, hey, I thought they were supposed to come back to you, O king. But instead, they, it would be like needing to go to San Francisco and taking 101, the straight route. Instead, they go out to Bodega and they turned left on Highway 1, the coastal route through tamales, right? Now, that's obviously you want to avoid something if you're going to travel that road instead of just get on 101, right? And that's what burns this man, that they actually caught on to him, and they're not going to give him what he wanted. It's the exact location of that baby so he could get his hands on this Christ child, Oh, well, Herod, try as you may, it's not going to happen because Jesus came to die, but he can't die as a baby. Baby Jesus cannot save the, uh, the world. Baby Jesus needs two things to happen. He needs to grow up and become the God-man to lay down his life in a negative sense to pay for our sins and transgressions. But in the positive sense, the God-man must fulfill all righteousness and fulfill the obedience that God requires so he could merit that to our account. So it's not just being let off the hook for something we've done bad. It's being credited with perfect obedience that he himself lived out. On our behalf. So in Christ, then, in Christ, we have perfectly obeyed. In Christ, we are perfectly paid. But if he dies as a baby, not to mention the 300 prophecies would all be broken. He, the God man has to grow up to ride a king into, uh, ride a king, <laughs> the king needs to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. 
It's because Zechariah said he would, the word of God. In Psalm 22, Jesus has to die with his hands and feet pierced. Because Isaiah chapter 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions. And in Psalm 22, a thousand years before Rome invented crucifixion, he cries out as a messianic psalm, my hands and my feet are pierced. Isaiah 53 is executed next to two criminals and buried in a rich man's tomb. All of that has to come to pass. So Jesus cannot die as a baby, and that's why the devil wants him to die as a baby, because uh, if he does, we're lost. But God's in charge. Pilate will say to Jesus, the Lamb of God is standing there on his own accord. Jesus is the one who said, nobody takes my life. When they come for him in the garden, he goes to them and says, who are you looking for? I am, and they fall down before him. And it's almost like he's helping them up and said, don't you go. Oh, oh, then he mocks them. He says, oh, you come with with clubs and chains and handcuffs. He goes, isn't that, I'm paraphrasing, isn't that cute? You know, because he's in charge. He's going to the cross. Nobody's taking his life. Jesus is not being killed for a good work. It's his good work to be killed. This is the way it goes. And he says, no, Herod, not gonna happen. You're gonna die first, way before Christ. And so Joseph, his, the child and the mother, uh, they outwit and outlast King Herod uh, because they're gonna make the journey now to Egypt. Egypt's rather close to um, the border there uh, of Bethlehem. It would be like going to Santa Barbara from here if you compared it, all right? So about 380 miles. And uh, the scholars say that if, they, if you do the math, they were there for three to five years. And uh, no, money wasn't a problem, you know, to wake up a working class guy and say, you've got to make an international trip now and support your wife and your new baby in another place without a job over there. Oh, no, they just got a fresh load of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Frankincense and myrrh were expensive. They could sell a little bit of that and use the gold. God knows what he's doing. One writer said, God always uses the gifts of worshipers to advance his causes on the earth. Now, Matthew is fond of pointing out all of the prophecies that are fulfilled around Christ and the gospel. He will do this 60 times. What are the odds that Jesus will fulfill and nail perfectly 60, and some say there's a lot more if you go indirect, 60 times he'll say this happened because God said it would happen. And he gives you chapter and verse. And in this case, he goes back to Hosea and he says, the reason really why Jesus is called out of Egypt, the refuge there, is because Hosea, 700 years earlier, said, out of Egypt, I have called my son, God speaking, right? Now, sometimes he calls Israel his firstborn son. And so Hosea was referring to the first exodus when Israel was captive in the slave pits there in Egypt. And so God sent Moses, the first deliverer, who said, 
also had a lot of bunch of babies had to die when the first deliverer came on the scene. Don't you remember? Pharaoh says, hey, you're going to kill all of these baby boys before they grow up and take over the place. Well, Satan knew that the first deliverer, Moses, was coming. And so even there you see, first deliverer, baby boys die. Second true deliverer, baby boys die. We just see this whole thing happening. And so out of Egypt, I've called my son Jesus. This is amazing because it's the new exodus. It's the true exodus of God's people now will follow Jesus called out of slavery, out of slavery of sin and death and judgment and come into life following Jesus, God's son. And it's true today, as Hosea said, God calls all his sons and all his daughters out of Egypt, out of slavery of sin and caught up in self to a life freed of sin. He who has the son has life and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And so that's what Hosea is talking about, the true exodus to come. While the son of God is safe in Egypt, some boys in Bethlehem are not safe. They're in harm's way. Next paragraph, please, starting at verse 16. When Herod realizes that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15 a voice is heard in Rama. Rama is, is near Bethlehem. A voice is heard in, really, Bethlehem, weeping and great mourning. Rachel, who is buried in Bethlehem, who gave birth to Benjamin, and Benjamin is the tribe that lives there in Bethlehem. The southern people, the southern Jews, trace their lineage back to Benjamin, and Rachel is Benjamin's mother. So she is, those who live in Bethlehem, they consider Rachel their mother, spiritually speaking, and physically. Oh, Rachel is weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. Of course, what a scene, because her children are no more. So escape to Egypt and now bloodshed in Bethlehem. And as I said, he blew a head gasket, you know, it's just interesting to me, really, that he just um, is fighting with full knowledge that he knows what he's doing. And he issues the infamous decree now that every male baby born in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, in keeping with what he asked the wise men, remember, he wants to know what he's up against. He's got this rival king, and he's going to neutralize him. So he wants to know exactly what time, what day did you first see the star so he can calculate in his head, am I dealing with a grown man? Am I dealing with a teenager? Am I dealing with a baby? What am I dealing with? And so apparently they've seen the star maybe a year, maybe six months. And maybe, as scholars say, that Herod is just widening whatever they said. It wasn't that long, but they, he widens the margin so not to let 
a rival king escape his evil grasp. And so he's not taking any chances. Now, Roman soldiers were usually very upright, and he's commanding Roman soldiers. And Roman soldiers could have, at the cost of their life, said no. We're not ripping baby boys out of their screaming mother's arms and putting a sword through them. And that would have cost their lives. And I bet you will find among the casualties that some who had a semblance of faith in God and in right behavior uh, abstained from the orders and it cost them their lives. Others just said it's a job to do and did it. This heinous act is in keeping with Herod's history. As the records show, this guy was all caps crazy, all caps um, evil. Now, uh, one writer said that he was so afraid that nobody would cry at his funeral, that on his deathbed, and saying, I want people to mourn, and I know they're not going to mourn the loss of my life, so he ordered his rivals at the time to be killed, along with some of his family. And you'll recall, I told you last week, uh, one writer said it would be safer to be one of his pigs in the backyard because he used to want to fake like he was a kosher Jew, so he would never allow the pigs to be slaughtered, but he slaughtered his own sons, three of them that were looking like they could take over and people liked them. And so the mom sided with the son, so he killed his wife. And then her mother was up in arms about the murderer's plot to kill her own daughter, and he killed her as well all in the history books. So what do you do with a guy like this? He's going to die. We know the story. I was in a coffee shop uh, about a month ago. Got into a conversation with somebody who was selling a Christmas book at the coffee shop. And I was interested. And it was kind of a new age Christmas book. Surprise. And so I wanted to know, and I just asked her, what happens when you die? And she had an answer. She said, oh, that's easy. Well, we just go on. We pass into an eternal, very blissful, peaceful state. And I said, we all do? And she said, yes, absolutely, we all do. It's the universe. It's the Christ consciousness. It's the power of the force. And here's what I said since I'm studying the Christmas story. What about Herod? Oh, Herod gets to peacefully pass into this eternal bliss? What about Hitler? What about rapists? What about abusers of children? What about them? The New Age has no answer for that. And she was silent. There was nothing to say. But the Bible has something to say. The Bible says God became all of that wickedness to give all wicked people a way out. But if they don't want a way out and they want to continue in their wicked ways, then they will by choice of their own separate themselves and be barred from the presence of God forever. That's what the Bible says will happen to the likes of King Herod who, <laughs> you know, sadly, Jesus was there to save the guy. And that's the thing about resisting God. It is so crazy to resist a God who would lay down his life for you. 
I mean, he, he comes with gifts and, 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 and blessings and joy and life and let me help you. And he approaches us in the form of a baby instead of coming the way he's coming the second time. He comes the first time as saying, come to me. I'm humble. I'm like you. I'm one of you. I'm more than that. <laughs> but you can approach me. Come to me. Everybody who's, who's weary and heavy burden and I will give you rest. For I'm humble and gentle in heart. The Lamb of God, the baby that looks like us, that cries like us, but it's God disguised. Not so much disguised after he starts making some of his claims and walking on the water, we start to catch on who this baby <laughs> really is. And so these boys are called the first Christian martyrs. You will meet them in heaven and they will have... No doubt, a great place of honor. You know Jesus will lavish upon them riches untold, you know. Uh, yes, and they will reign and rule in the new Jerusalem. Maybe not so far from the place they were ripped from their cribs and now reigning in glorified bodies with the Christ who came into their very neighborhood to save. That'll be a mind blower, you know? So yeah, we're sad and we're disheartened. A lot of people read this story and say, what? How does God, how does God put up with that? He knew it was coming. And <clears throat> you know, there are questions that will only be answered in heaven, but there are some answers here. We know that the world is rife with evil and murderous things. The first human being born with a belly button, the first one is a murderer who the Hebrew says slaughtered in cold blood his own brother because he was jealous that his brother Abel had a right relationship with God and he didn't. God tried to reason with him. What's your problem? Do what's right. Everything's good. Don't have to be so angry. What's your problem? God reaching out in mercy, trying to help the guy, but he's a murderer, the first human being. So we're used to it cover to cover. Good, slugging it out with evil, evil slugging it out with good. And it's all about that. That's what's going on. Now, come on. Is the bloodshed stop in Bethlehem at Christmas time? Of course not. Is, is uh, Rachel, are her tears dried for her slain children? Both Jews and Christians, spiritually speaking, she's our mother as well. Of course not. No, on Christmas Day, 2,000 Christmases later, there's bloodshed. Where? ISIS. Who are they killing? They killed a whole bunch of Christians. On Christmas Day, who would never have died if Christ didn't come into their life? Because having Christ in your life put you a target there. And because Israel... <laughs> Is the progenitor of the Christ. They are a target in the world. So number one object of hostility, Israel. Number two, the church. And who's behind all of that? The evil one who hates God and his people, Israel, and his people, the church. And that explains why you have baby boys slaughtered when God comes in, in love. Let me show you a, a happier truth here. In Revelation, 
this is where this is all going because he comes into the car wreck, into the train wreck of mad, crazy, murderous mankind and becomes one of us so that he can be murdered even though it's his idea, so that he can offer a way out until he comes again with the gavel. But right now it's amnesty that he would become all of this and say, hey, listen, I love you so much. You don't have to. I'll pay for all of this craziness, including Cain's murderous rage and all of it. It's all laid on Jesus. There's a way out. And at the end, he comes to judge the world. And then the old order of things have passed away. And look at what's prophesied. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Wow, that's going to be a sight. Prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. That gives you the ambiance. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, God's dwelling place where God lives is now among people where he will visibly be seen, where you can touch him. He can reach out and touch you and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be them, uh, be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from Rachel's eyes and all the moms and all the dads and everybody who's been a casualty because of Christmas from the dawn of the first Christmas. And there are millions of us who have been through it because we've connected with baby Jesus, who is no longer a baby, I'll tell you that much. So he will wipe every tear from our eyes, no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away, gone. And he was seated on the throne said, I love this. I'm making everything new. Then he says, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. God says, oh, by the way, it's all going to happen. Oh, I'm going to make it happen. Isaiah says, by the zeal of God himself, his own zeal, he swears by himself because there's nobody else to swear by. He says, I just swear by myself. I'm God. Only has to put his hand on anything, right? He just says, as I live, says the Lord, all things will be new. And nothing unclean will ever enter. Nothing unrighteous, no evil, outside. Praise the Lord for that great day that's coming. And meanwhile, we put up with some crazy things that happen that will spin your head around. But we trust in the Lord our God because he has promised to work everything out for our good. And so I think you understand uh, the prophecy there that um, anything associated with Bethlehem is going to bring some chaos sometimes. But be of good cheer. He's overcome the world. Okay, we're finishing up now. After Herod dies, an angel of the Lord appears in a dream to Joseph again, yet again, and says, okay, time up. Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying, those, for those, oh, who were trying to take the child's life are dead. That's what happens. Verse 21, so he got up took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus, Herod Jr., 
was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod. He was afraid to go there. Now, amazing that Joseph wants to go back to Jerusalem, even though they were just temporarily there because of the census. They really live in Nazareth. But he wants to go back to Jerusalem. That's interesting. Having been warned in a dream not to do that. He withdrew to the district of Galilee where Nazareth is. And so he lived in a, in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophet, one of 60 of them, he will be called a Nazarene. Why did they go to Nazareth? Because God said it was going to happen. That's why, <laughs> among some other things. So escape to Egypt, check. Bloodbath in Bethlehem, check. Now directed by a dream. Once again, this is number four of five dreams, two in this paragraph, that will help guide Joseph, who is called Mr. Obedient by commentators. God chose the right man for the job. Imagine if Joseph were a different character, quality. Imagine him to be all about himself, where he has to question everything, that he's not quick to obey, that he has to say, hey, what about my life? I didn't sign up for this. I just got established here in Egypt. Now, you know, first you wake me up in the middle of the night. The first time I have to run, you know, I didn't have time to say goodbye to anybody. You know, I need a Christian therapist to work some of this out <laughs> first because, you know, I've got some issues with God, okay? Had he been like that, oh, man, we could be telling a different story, right? Had he been irresponsible or full of doubt or unreliable? No, he's not like that. He's a guy who quickly obeys and puts a smile on God's heart. You know, you know that guys who are like that are a joy to God. I could just tell him once, and he does it. No matter the cost to him, inconvenience, how it doesn't really make sense to him. No, he, it's in the word of God. I put it on his heart through the Holy Spirit. He knows, he gets it. I can tell the guy one time, done. He doesn't push back. You don't ever see him doing anything of taking some time to think about it. Let me pray through this, okay? Watch it. Yes, it's okay to pray through some stuff. But I'm just pointing out that what we see in this guy's life is enviable, admirable. Oh, my word. One writer said, the world owes an incredible debt to men of character who serve in the background, strong in their faith in God, who put God first, who stand ready to do what's right, whatever the cost to self, to please the God they love, to serve the God they live for. That's Joseph, quiet, strong, works with his hands. He's in the background, and he's obedient to God, which makes him a Bible hero. He makes, he's a hero. And I know, I know a lot of heroes in this congregation that are just like him. And nobody will know until that great day. Then we'll find out. Now, Matthew tells us how they end up relocating back to Galilee, which is about, what, 70 miles north. Uh, in Nazareth, 
though, like I said, they're originally from there, we would have thought, oh, time to go back. We can't wait to go to Nazareth. But Joseph's got it in his head that I need to take the Messiah back to Grand Central Station to Jerusalem. Where else would you raise the Son of God? So Joseph's convinced. Now he knows, wow, I'm stewarding God's Messiah as the adoptive dad to the Christ. Where else would I bring him? That's where we were when the star showed up. That's where Jerusalem uh, happens, the temple, the leaders, the city, the capital city. Shouldn't I be there? And he has to be warned, no, no, don't do that. You don't have to go there. That podunk Nazareth, is fine for the Son of God because that's been the story from the beginning. God identifies with the weak and the lowly and the everyday person and he comes in and there's no room, of course, that preaches a thousand sermons. There's no room for God in his world that he created. By him all things were created and there's no room for him. So he goes, he's born in a barn. He couldn't do better than that, God? Come on. And now he's going to go to Nazareth, which was despised. They used to make fun of people from Nazareth and call them uh, like hillbillies. And you'll recall that at the fire, 30 years later or so, when Peter's warming his hands, one of the little servant girls says, three times, I think we know you. I think you're from Galilee because you got an accent just like they do, right? And so they point out Peter's accent, his hillbilly hick accent from up there gives him away. And then that's where he pronounces curses down on his own head, which was an unfortunate time for him. And so, yes, indeed, he, he is going to go back to a place where Nathaniel hears that he's from Nazareth. And he says, can anything good come out of a place like Nazareth? <laughs> and Philip says, come and see. Come and see. You'll see that something really wonderful can come. But that's our God. That's who he is. He doesn't come down to some palace to live in some feather bed, you know, and all of that. He's got working class dad. They have just enough money to make it by on a carpenter's salary. In fact, when Jesus is dedicated in the temple, they bring a poor man's offering. They don't bring the regular offering. They bring the it's okay if you can't afford it offering. That's the kind of family God incarnates himself into. That's just amazing. And so uh, he says, and by the way, God knew that he would be called a Nazarene. Let me show you the extended scriptures and then we'll be done. There in Isaiah 9, 700 years before. <laughs> but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. That word should be Gentiles. It's nations or Gentiles. That's another reason why Galilee was, uh, it was kind of a border town. And uh, it was despised because there were a lot of non-Jews there. Uh, Nazareth, by the way of the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee. And the Bible likes to call any body of water a sea. Beyond the Jordan River right there, 
the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light is dawn. Well, there you have it right there. 700 years before, uh, God is saying, here's where the light of the world is going to be born and spend most of his life. There in Galilee. Now, come on. This is just one of 300. One of 300. Isaiah will go on in three further verses and say, and this one born in Galilee or living in Galilee will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the greatness of his reign and peace will be eternal. This is amazing. This is just saying, listen, people of God, I'm in charge, God says. I've seen it all coming. I put it all in place and I overcome. And those who put their faith in my son will overcome as well because that little baby is mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, wrapped in skin with a heartbeat so he can grow up and take on the sins of the world in a, in a beautiful substitutionary death on our behalf. This is the gospel. This is what Matthew wants to write about and what she's done now in chapter one and chapter two, just saying this is how God became one of us. Here's the story. And it didn't come out of thin air. It was born out of hundreds of prophecies where God foretold his great plan of redemption, born out of his great love for you and me. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this magnificent plan that no man could have ever put together. We stand amazed at Jesus the Nazarene and wonder, wonder how you could love somebody like us, God, we just, we want to say thank you. And the way we're going to do that is by how we live our lives today. Kind of like Joseph, maybe. And just simple. <laughs> um, without a lot of fanfare and strife. But just simple obedience. To get the job done. And be about our Father's business. So that others might be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rock's podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.